You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning, everybody. Good morning. It's Annie here for uh, Solidarity Breakfast, uh, 3CR's breakfast on a Saturday. Uh, We're going to go to an issue that we've been covering for a while on uh, this program. It's been uh, our lived environment. Last week we uh, heard uh, a fantastic uh, piece from uh, the Marxist conference, a speech given by Steph Price, um, Unlivable Cities, it was such a rollicking speech, but uh, of course uh, it was an example to us about how our lived environments in the urban space is uh, dominated by developers, the wishes of various versions of developers, in fact, that uh, there is a belief that only money and power should direct the shape of our lived environments. Uh, it's, it's part of uh, the might is right process that's been going on for a very long time, pre-capitalism, but uh, is certainly em- emboldened by capitalism. And uh, over time we've uh, had yarns with uh, uh, Steve Jolly, uh, Yarra, Yarra Valley, uh, sorry, Yarra Councillor, uh, around things like facadism, that's where a little lace front of the old building remains in front of a monolith tower behind. Yesterday, there was a press event in front of the Curtin Hotel. Now, the Curtin Hotel is just across the road from the Victorian Trades Hall and has a long uh, history of uh, labour a long, uh, a fondly held connection to the Labor movement because, of course, it was the pub directly across the road from Trades Hall. And uh, as Dave Kerrin, who was there at the event yesterday, a uh, long term um, uh, Labor uh, f- uh, uh, fighter, um, he was uh, reminiscing about how uh, there would be. Uh, the big meetings over at Trades Hall where everybody would get the reports but actually the uh, ev- uh, the final results would be hammered out in the Curtin Hotel. Uh, so there was a green ban that has been now placed on the redevelopment of the Curtin Hotel and that was what the media event was about yesterday. So I've got a report for you about that. And uh, I also, you, you may have missed the uh, laying of the wreaths on uh, the uh, eight-hour monument on the 28th, but I went down there and I caught a couple of the speeches. They were really uh, uh, 
talking about uh, issues that were of importance to the speakers in terms of their working life. Uh, so we'll have a listen to a bit of that. Uh, I've got a very interesting piece from Marxism, which was uh, part of uh, an evening event that was looking at uh, uh, the right, the rise of the right in the European context. And uh, this particular piece was uh, uh, Phil Butler, who lives has lived in um, Germany for uh, decades and uh, he was reporting on uh, various elements of the uh, uh, political as well as uh, um, everyday rightism that's going on in Germany and how it's reflected in policy as well as daily life, uh, which was fascinating. The It was a Zoom cross and uh, so it was a little uh, uh, frail in its uh, uh, in the sound quality, but uh, m- the majority of it is quite clear and there's some really interesting elements about how the right is infiltrating the mind space of the politic in Germany, which we don't normally get a view to. So I thought it'd be worthwhile uh, listening in to what Phil Butler had to say. Of course, Kevin's going to uh, give us a rundown of the week and... Uh, there are, as I as uh, the most important uh, event for us this week is uh, May Day, which is falling on Sunday. So the uh, traditionalists who want May Day to be uh, celebrated on actual May Day, plus the people who have uh, been uh, running May Day events out of uh, trade at all, uh, who had. Uh, decided that uh, doing the event on the Sunday closest to May the 1st, uh, they can join, they're joining forces and uh, that's a great thing. And uh, remembering that uh, 3CR is also going to be broadcasting from that uh, event. So we'll hear a little bit about that. Join 3CR's May Day 2022 broadcast on Sunday the 1st of May. Hear our communities celebrate the achievements of the labour movement and shine a light on the continued struggle for workers' rights everywhere. Starting at 9.15am with a brief history of May Day, we'll bring you coverage and analysis of local and international labour issues, including a live cross to the 2022 Melbourne May Day rally between midday and 3pm. Wrapping up with a Queer Workers Special from 3 to 4pm. Visit our webpage 3cr.org.au forward slash Mayday2022 for all the details. You're with Annie on 3CR Breakfast and uh, like I said, I went down to the press event outside uh, the Curtin Hotel just across the uh, way from Victoria Trades Hall and uh, it was all about the announcement of a new green ban to protect the hotel. Today we are announcing a green ban to protect the John Curtin Hotel. What does that mean? Well, we are setting out a very large message to every builder in Victoria that you cannot touch this building. To Victorian building workers, we are saying if you're engaged in this site, you should go somewhere else. We are standing united as a large community group. We have musicians with us, we have local residents with us. We have people who 
love Melbourne's heritage and seek to protect us, and we had the Victorian Trade Union Movement who were all standing up to protect this building. The Green Bands Movement in Victoria has made Melbourne part of what it is today. It kept its character. Flinders Street Station, the Regent Theatre, the Princess Theatre, Queen Vic Market, the City Bars, everything that partly makes our city special, keeping our heritage together, is what the union movement is seeking to protect once again. And so that's why we've today announced a green ban. So the union movement, in partnership with RMIT, had tried to buy the building. We had the largest bid in, but that was not taken up. Um, we are surprised by that. The building in the end was sold for $5.5 to an international developer. We are very worried that the international developer is going to come in and rip this building down, just like what happened to the Corkman, to try to whack up apartments. That is inappropriate for this site. So what the Green Band does is we send a message out to the community saying, we're going to stand by this building. We are going to protect it, if necessary, but with ourselves. Now you will see people form their own picket line to protect this building. What we're sending a message to builders is there is a Green Band on. You should not try to develop this site. What we're saying to workers is if you are asked to engage in the site, you should actually go work somewhere else. There's plenty of construction work in this great city. Consequences for builders, if they go work on this site, is they might face very significant disruption. And it is hard to make a dollar out of a site like this if there's such large disruption. Now, this hasn't been done in some time, we know that. But we need to protect Victoria's heritage. We say this place is very important. It's one of the oldest pubs in Victoria. We can't see pubs that are also dedicated music venues be picked off one by one. That will change the nature and the culture of this place. And we can't have it. We want to keep Melbourne special. Yeah, green bands were controversial. Absolutely right. But what they did is they protected our city. We haven't had big discussions yet with employer groups. We'll seek to do that. What we tried to do is to talk to the person that purchased the building themselves. And so far, the agents and both the family that sold the building are refusing to put us in contact. We would love nothing more to have a dialogue with them to make sure that we protected the pub and this music venue. I think Corky in the, uh, in the golden beer pub in the sky would be looking down with a smile and raising a glass. I think older unionists that have passed on and some who still remember the green bands would smile upon what the current union movement is doing because we're continuing a great legacy here of protecting what's important to Melbourne. It's protecting our character um, it is unacceptable to me that someone from overseas who doesn't live here can buy something that's culturally important and flip it for a quick buck. What they've bought is not a pub, what they've bought really is a giant problem. What we would like to see is not just the unions taking responsibility for this. We are, gr we are grateful that the rest of the community is with us, but there should be state laws in place that protect buildings just like this one behind us because they don't only just hold our history, they also hold our future. Melbourne can be quite a cold city and we need our public spaces, especially during winter. And for us, for many of us, it's the pubs. And the old pubs, the pubs that are 150 years old, they are worthy of not just protecting their facade, but of their ongoing use. There is more construction work going in this city than we've seen ever before. Refusing to work on this building will have zero impact on the industry. Um, what it will say is that the industry stands up and stands with their local community, that they're proud to protect these type of places. Um, I wouldn't think that the MBA or any other large industry group would probably be opposed to a small site like this being protected. We wouldn't rule out green bounds on other buildings, but just to be focused right now, we found one that is special and is needing a protection. There's a reason we haven't done this for many, many years, 
and that's because we take careful considerations of the type of buildings that should be protected. And we're saying this one right now is historically important. It's not just important to the labour movement, it's important to the music industry, it's important to upcoming bands, it's important to the residents of Carlton and Melbournians generally. Um, there may be other heritage buildings that are in need of protection, and if that comes up, of course, building unions will consider that as well. I might invite some of the musos up here. Yeah. Sure, sure, yep, Simone Schinkel, and I'm the CEO of Music Victoria. Well, I'm here today because the Curtain Hotel is a renowned live music venue, and if we start losing them, then we lose our identity as a state of live music. It's so powerful to be here alongside musicians, um, really to protect what is important to us. Uh, we're the live music capital of the world here in Melbourne, uh, and we're really blessed to have the state government support, the city of Melbourne support in the protection of this building. We have uh, good allowances through planning permits, but we don't want developers finding loopholes and taking away what is significantly a cultural icon of this state. This is a small to medium sized venue and those are where people get their first starts. It's where we make the next international act that is coming from Victoria. So we need places like this to try out new ideas and new people and new voices and give them that community support that inspires them to keep going. Look, it's got a great history in supporting First Nations artists. That's probably the key bit that's a point of difference from other venues around the city. But obviously it's the multiple layers in that I'm here with all my colleagues from across other industries that is what all together makes this just one of a kind. Yeah, uh, Madeline Lamont. Uh, I have a band, so Madeline Lamont and the Desert Swells. Um, Desert and swells. <laughs> so, um, so, how important is this venue to you and uh, to those around you? Yeah, it's so important. I mean, it's my favourite venue to play in Melbourne, and like as a mid tier artist, there's not really anywhere else that I can play that I feel like they will support me, that I'll have an opportunity. It's the first place I ever um, supported an international act, which was a huge opportunity for my band, and there's not many other places that will give yeah, up and coming bands that, that opportunity. Um, just on a very like musical level, great sound, great stage, great lighting. Like you'd think they would be a given, but they're just not um, <laughs> in every venue. Like Melbourne's amazing, but like this is exceptional. And like the promoters work with the bands to really create like a community experience. Like a lot of, you know, some venues kind of put a lot of onus on the, the bands to bring in, um, you know, customers. But with this venue, it's sort of like a very collaborative, Thing. Yeah, like, absolutely. Um, I think that's just really special. There's just not really many other venues like it, really. It, and how tough is the last couple of Oh, I mean, we had to cancel a gig today because half of the band either has COVID or is isolating from COVID. Ruby's recovering from COVID. So, you know, it's it's ongoing. Like, it's this, is the, this has been almost tougher than 2020. Like, 2020 was just like, okay, there's nothing on go into your bedroom, write a new album, great. But 2021 and 2022 has just been like cancellation after cancellation after cancellation. Like the venues work with us. Like I did a single launch here in 2021. We had to postpone it. It's put so much, you know, strain on the venue and the artists. It's just, it's impossible. It's like, it's really, really, really hard at the moment. So to have this, like this was, hearing the news of the, the curtain going was like, such a blow. It's, a, it was the it's worst. something <laughs> we're not ready to no, accept because yeah. this is a venue that supports artists and they support their staff and it feels like a family. Yeah. So when we play here, we feel like we're part of a community. 
me and we're cared for, which is not what you get yeah. at every venue. So it's a, it's a really special place in Melbourne. Like, I think you could ask anybody and some of their favourite shows that they've ever seen, their most sort of spiritual, emotional moments have been in this venue. So and it means too yeah, much. Yeah. Like people don't come from around the world or from Sydney to here, to Melbourne, to see a stadium show. You know, they come to Melbourne to discover a new artist. Like, I played a show at Record Store Day and I met a woman from Indonesia who'd come to Australia on a business trip. She was in Sydney, but she came all the way to Melbourne because she knew that Melbourne was the place where she could discover new music, and that's what she likes doing. It's not about, you know, seeing the huge touring artists. Yeah. It's about discovering something new. And there's not that many, you know, venues that are still willing to take on up-and-coming artists and really promote them and give them the best opportunities. You know, I think that's really Absolutely, and also the music community are the first people to advocate for other people, you know, other folks. Yeah. So, <laughs> so, you know, if there's ever a fundraiser, the bushfires, the floods. I mean, we just played a, a flood fundraiser. <laughs> you know, yeah. 2020, the only shows we played were fundraisers, and then we went straight into lockdown. So I think it's time that the, you know, the, the someone advocates for our community. Yeah, <laughs> you know? absolutely. Yeah, thank you so much. <laughs> thank you. Hello, everyone. Uh, my name's Chris Quinlan. I'm uh, a representative of Musicians Australia. It's a very new union, uh, only formed in 2019. The reason uh, that they've asked me to come and speak to you is uh, this is where I grew up. My father ran the Dan O'Connell Hotel in Carlton. He took it over in 1963. Uh, some, of that, some of you out there might know that that's a famous uh, folk music pub, quite iconic in its own right. It's gone. Uh, when I was um, coming up, I'd go to Princess Park, you know, Dinky Dye Carlton supporter. It was very territorial. And um, all my mates um, would go to Princess Park. That's gone for Carlton, apart from the training ground. Right now, uh, we're talking about bands and iconic hotels. We've, uh, we've put a, I'm completely agreeing with the green band put on by the collective of the Trades Hall. But one of the main things about that is that even when we're talking about a cult in history, what we're dealing with is things like iconic pubs back in the 1990s, like the Sarah Sands Hotel. That's gone, long gone, and that's being developed as we speak. So it's an ongoing thing that we really need to stand up for. All my colleagues here are talking about what it's been like over the last two years. Uh, it's been hard. Um, my living is as a full-time musician and I teach drums and guitar. I work with Community uh, TV, Channel 31, and the, one of the main things is the story is compelling about how many people have fallen through the cracks over the last couple of years of COVID who are musicians, artists, and as everyone's already said, a wonderful history in Melbourne of live music that we don't want to lose. So what it is to us, is it's not just what are we going to do when a developer comes in and buys an iconic you know place like the curtain hotel uh, it's what is actually happening to our culture are we going to sell it all off what's going to happen i've talked about my father's hotel i've talked about the sarah sands in the good old days where it had two levels of music many residences there, lots of wonderful memories and culture and arts, you know, even down to the good old door tape, you know, that kind of thing. 
So um, I'll keep it short, but uh, that's really what I'm here for. And I just want to thank you all for coming. It's been wonderful. And uh, I'll hand it over to whomever is left. Thank you very much for listening. How are we? Derek Christopher, the Assistant Secretary of the CFMEU. What I'd like to say is that um, the CFMEU stands here proudly today uh, with community. It's pivotal. The CFMEU has always contributed to its community. We care. Um, we, we play a pivotal role in community always because uh, the fact that we believe that um, with the pub, uh, the John Curtin behind us as we speak, is um, if the walls could talk, it would, uh, it would tell you very wonderful memories about history of, um, of um, events that have occurred in this uh, particular venue. We have supported uh, communities right across Australia, previously with our forefathers, with the Green Bands going to the rocks in Sydney, to the very Regent Theatre here in Melbourne that we have supported for uh, development. We're not against our industry, but we like to stand with industry today to, um, to support a Green Band on the particular project here or proposed project to be, that, um, that it's uh, be something that be left as a monument for our, our youngies later on in the future to enjoy. Um, we see that um, what was a, a demise to the Victorian culture after the Corkman Hotel, which shows that, um, how would you say, that the, the, the laws and, the, and, the, and the, the lack of regulation around developers being able to purchase land around uh, the, great, the greater city of Melbourne and have any disregard for its history and its culture and working industries that actually survived out of these venues that, that the Corkman was actually just um, showing complete contempt and disrespect for, for Victoria and Victoria's community by demolishing it with um, nothing less than a, a slap on the wrist. And we're not prepared to stand here and allow the same sort of turn of events happen to the John Curtin Hotel. We will stand with community and we'll stand with um, industry to make sure that the preservation of what is history, because that's what the CFMU cares about, is we care about community, we care about preservation, and we care about um, passing things down to the next generation. And we're hoping that um, that whoever is the successful uh, vendor of this particular uh, uh, venue, or this prime piece of real estate, that they see uh, what is um, the history inside this particular place. So effectively though, what does that mean? What will the union do if there is a plan to develop this and it goes ahead? Well, short to say that we would work with anybody that wants to do any sort of development here to a point that where it's got to be a, a consortium of um, a consortium of dialogue between um, the, the, the community the community that stands here today with the future developer on what he wants to do with it. But you, the union basically, if, if it was, say for instance, to be knocked down, we will stand here with our community and protect the venue. So, no union labour? No union labour. And I don't believe any labour should be wanting to go there and, uh, and demolish what would be part of Melbourne's history. There is plenty of real estate around Melbourne that they can go and build their towers on. We aren't anti-development, we are pro-development. Um, that's how we make our bread and butter. But to stand again to say that the union, over time, my forefathers and the people coming up below me will stand for the preservation of what is culturally right in Victoria for all working industry and working communities. Hi everyone, thank you for having me. So my name's Felicity Watson, F-E-L-I-C-I-T-Y, Watson, W-A-T-S-O-N. 
and I'm the advocacy manager. I'm the advocacy manager at the National Trust of Australia Victoria. The National Trust is incredibly proud to stand here today with the union movement um, for this historic announcement that a green ban is going to be applied on this property. A lot of people think that heritage is about building fabric and about the facades of the buildings that we can see, but it's actually so much more than that. It's also about the life of those buildings. It's about the cultural life that they are able to nurture in our cities and to make a really incredible destination to visit. And so when we see a place like the Curtin Hotel that has indisputable significance, both historically, but also as a culturally significant place to current communities. It's ironic that our heritage laws can only protect the facade of the building. And so that's why we're standing up today. Green bands have always been an important tool to stop places from falling through the cracks um, that are vulnerable to redevelopment. And I think it's a, a very strong gesture by the union movement to stand up today and to say that they're not going to let uh, the Curtin Hotel be redeveloped or demolished. The National Trust is really proud to stand behind that. We're proud to stand behind the community that is fighting so hard to save this building. And we hope that this will be one of the, um, the things that enables um, this pub to be a vibrant venue into the future. National Trust be supportive of bringing in these laws that we've talked about to, to allow for greater protection for heritage buildings, not just to cover that, that facade or the, you know, the general overlay? Absolutely. So the National Trust partnered with the union movement to nominate the hotel to the Victorian Heritage Register, which will provide an additional layer of protection. But we're also talking to government and doing advocacy around the protection of historic um, and important cultural uses of buildings. We've already lost too much of our cultural heritage. We've lost the Palace Theatre, we've lost the Greyhound Hotel, we've lost the Corkman. We need to draw a line in the sand now and say that we are not going to accept this into the future and we need to stand together as a community to come up with solutions to this issue. So currently the building is protected under the local Melbourne planning scheme. It has a heritage overlay, uh, but we've nominated it to the register, which would provide a higher level of protection. And that nomination is currently being assessed by Heritage Victoria, who will then come back with a recommendation about whether it should be included. So at the moment, under the current planning controls, uh, the owner of the site could retain the front portion of the building but could certainly develop the rear of the building and there's no requirement to retain the interior. So the City of Melbourne are doing some really great work at the moment to strengthen the local heritage protections on this site and that's really important as well. Um, and they've been doing a lot of um, important work to improve development outcomes on heritage sites. But the reality is, for example, the Corkman Hotel, even if it hadn't been illegally demolished, would have turned into a 40 metre high apartment block. So the irony is that we actually lose what is significant to the community about that place. Is there a, a um, overlay regarding facades, the streetscape and height of buildings? Yes, so in this area, the whole um, streetscape um, right down to Victoria Street is protected by the city of Melbourne. Uh, but the planning controls do allow a higher level of development behind the facades.
Curtain Hotel is under attack. What do we do? Stand, Stand up, footprint! What do we do? Stand up, footprint! What do we do? Stand up, footprint! Ask me for a clue, and I will always tell you true. Listen with your words. Hi, I'm Sarah from Dash, and you're listening to 3CR. It's true. It's safer when I'm here with you. It's true.
You're back with Annie on 3CR Breakfast and uh, the first speaker on that particular uh, piece about the green ban at uh, the Curtin Hotel yesterday was, of course, Luke Hilakari, the uh, Victorian Trades Hall Council Secretary. Uh, I forgot to tell you. I thought I'd better tell you. Back announce. <laughs> it was an interesting affair. It, one of the points that was very curious was the announcement that uh, it was sold for $5.5 million. It's a prime piece of uh, real estate. It seems like a very small sum. And it was also interesting that uh, the... Uh, uh, there wouldn't nobody would tell the other consortium, the uh, trades hall, uh, in tandem with RMIT, who the actual buyer was, uh, and also that it was an international developer. Uh, also, that uh, uh, the offer put by the uh, Victorian Trades Hall and RMIT was actually higher than the one that was finally accepted. Very strange stuff going on there. So we'll see what happens at on uh, as uh, things move afo- uh, go ahead. Of course, the big news, of course, is uh, that uh, a green ban uh, has been placed on the Curtin Hotel. We're now going to go to Germany uh, and the rise of the right. Uh, uh, Phil Butler was uh, one of the speakers at the recent Marxist uh, conference down at Williamstown. Uh, it was a live cross by Zoom, uh, so um, things may have developed slightly, but uh, this is a backgrounder, really, to uh, what's happening in Germany at the moment. Uh, it's really quite fascinating, some of the things he has to say. Phil Butler is a British-born socialist who's lived in Germany for the last... He's a member of Die Linke and Marx 21 and is the speaker of the Berlin Linke, Linke Internationals Group that seeks to organise non-Germans in Berlin. He's also the commissioning editor of theleftberlin.com. Please thank Phil for joining us. Hello, thanks. Um, good, well, good morning or good evening, depending on where, where you are. I don't have much time, so I'm going to talk in headlines and acronyms. And if there are questions, please ask. There are going to be three acronyms I'm going to talk about AFD you probably about Pegida you may have heard about on go go through each through and why the Deutschland and it's a party, a new party formed 2013, initially as an anti-youth an anti-EU party. It gained a large degree of support during the so-called refugee crisis in 2015 when a lot of Syrian refugees were admitted in, into, into Germany. Not the, the 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 stories you hear is that is that is that there was a big wave of anti-immigrant feeling. That was only part of the story. The the, the refugee quote is polarized society, and you saw large welcome committees at stations welcoming refugees at the same time. Um, big demonstrations again. Uh, the reason why it wasn't the linker, but 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 the the Greens uh, benefited from a uh, pro-refugee feeling, and the AFD uh, gained uh, from a, an anti-refugee feeling. With the result that in the 2017 elections it got 12.6 percent of the votes, 94 MPs, and when the um, CDU and SPD went into government, the AFD was the official opposition of the in the in the German German parliament. We had elections again last September. The 
the AFD vote went down to 10.3%. And there's two ways you can look at that. I read an article this morning which said, OK, the AFD threat may well be over. I think that's the wrong way of saying which said there is now one-tenth of German voters prepared to vote for a party which is... Um, we categorise it, it's not a fascist party, it is a fascist party with fascists in it. That they, it, 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 It's an assemblage of all strange neoliberal and racist racist forces. But there is at the moment a faction fight going on and the Nazi uh, wing, the, Der Flugel, is winning this. And so the potential that the AFD has of turning into a full-out Nazi party is very real and something we should be worried about. I move quickly on to the second uh, acronym, the PEGIDA, which is a short for the Patriotic Europeans Against the Islamization of the Western World. It was formed by a out-and-out Nazi, Lutz Bachmann. He was later had to stand down as leader because there were photos of him painting Hitler. It started before the uh, refugees came, came in Germany, but really an anti uh, an Islamophobic racist demonstrations, which were particularly strong in Eastern Germany. Uh, for reasons I can't, can't, can't go into, these demonstrations weren't sustained. Um, it was that that they, um, yeah, there was tens of thousands for several weeks. There were large counter demonstrations as, as, as well. And they went a little bit in the in the background where the racists moved on to other tactics, attacking refugee ho- homes, for example, firebomb attacks. Um, but then in 2018, we saw a new new set of demonstrations where. Nazis, uh, AFD people, and let's say uh, confused people, co- confused liberals were starting to march, march, march together, and which the Nazis a recruiting ground. It may be worth saying that ninety percent of the of, of Pegida members were also support, also supported the AFD. So there is a close relationship between the two. More recently, um, we've had the COVID crisis, and uh, Germany has, not, has sometimes been portrayed in the outside world as being ha- having, having dealt successfully with COVID. This is not the case. This was never the case. That Germany always had a policy of, or the German government always had a policy of industry first, which meant that people were forced to go into work in overcrowded uh, trams at the same time that the parks were being shut. And so there was a lot of rightful indignation, indignation about the um, uh, about the about the policy which was to protect uh, to protect um, um, to protect industry, but not individuals. And Germany had one of the highest uh, COVID death rates um, of the end. And this um, resulted in a new uh, phenomenon which was called Corona Leugner, Corona liars. This is equivalent to anti-vaxxers in other in other countries, but it was uh, much more specifically against the whole of the COVID policies of the German German government. The in the last year, the Corona Leugner have been able to organise quite big demonstrations, again, tens of thousands, many tens of thousands of, of, of people, but also they've been organising every Monday weekly strolls where people go through their neighbourhood. It's not, uh, they don't register the demonstrations, you have to, after in Germany, say, oh, we're just going out for a stroll. In some places like uh, Wedding, North Berlin, where I live, these are just a small group of strange esoteric hippies who are going. In other areas, there are more seriously... Um, far right and actual actual Nazis. I don't know if people remember the news reports of one of the big Corona Leugner 
demonstrations which stormed the Reichstag, the German parliaments, with people um, holding Nazi, Nazi, Nazi banners. So what this has meant is that we're ha having significant demonstrations, demonstrations of a significant size, where the people on the platforms, the people who are organising it, are quite often out-and-out Nazis, where the AFD is playing a, 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 a significant role. And... Um, and, and 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 yet the sort of there are other people walking with them. We've used the slogan of these demonstrations: "You're marching with Nazis." It's not that everyone on the demonstration is a Nazi, but it's a worrying potential that the um, that, that the AFD and people to the right them having lost the momentum slightly on Pegida and now have now got a forum in which they're able to organise not just on the electoral level, but also on the level of um, on the level of the, of the, of the streets. Um, which brings me to the third acronym, the NSU, uh, the National Socialist Underground, which is um, perhaps one of the, the most worrying of, the, of, the, of these developments. National Socialist Underground, obviously a Nazi organisation. It was a cell which murdered 10 migrants. It's responsible for bomb attacks and bank jobs. The initial response of the police was to say, um, so that when these murders were happening, say this was a result of Turkish gang war. The press called them Derna murder, murders. The victims' families were harassed by the police as well. And so there was uh, quite indifference shown by both the police and the and the uh, and the press against a series of racist racist murders. Much worse than that, it turned out the um, that the the, the foul men are the uh, police agents. Over 20, over forty police agents were um, openly involved in the NSU in this uh, Nazi cell. That the police agents were providing weapons, which were used to um, to, to to kill migrants. And at least one per, a police agent was present on one of the scenes where somebody somebody was killed. The police destroyed evidence that the NSU members were tipped off when they were going to be raided raided by by the by the police. And it's a scandal which really never reached world headlines and was not really discussed in in, in, in Germany, but a clear state collusion collusion with uh, out and out neo Nazi murderers. Uh, there was a trial which took years to happen. The verdict was produced in 2018. Five people were charged, all described as Einzeltäter, perhaps the best uh, translation is lone gunman. So they're all individuals, they weren't part of any network, uh, and, and they made the kind of can. We've seen this idea of Einzeltäter, of the, of the individuals being responsible for, obviously, um, organised violence time and again. In 2019, there was a shooting at Halle Synagogue, uh, which killed a, a number of people. In 2020, in Hanau, there was a massacre of nine migrants. Each time, um, e e e each time the press and the police are talking about actual data about individuals who are have nothing to do with Nazi structures, but just somehow uh, let flee. Um, what this means is we've got a combination of three things in Germany at the moment. We have a party, the AFD, where fascists are gained, where it is quite possible that the that their flugel, the Nazi wing, is going to take over the take over the party. Um, we've we've already had three of leaders of the AFD leave because of the growing Nazi influence, and that doesn't seem to be going any other way. 
we have a street movement which um, started as an Islamophobic racist movement. It's moved into something against corona protests, but it means that in, in Germany we have something which is not as predominant in France, which is that the Nazis are building on the streets as well as in the parliament. And on top of that, we have implicit state and press support for out-and-out fascists. Why this is all important, one reason why this is all important is, I said we had elections in September, there was a new SPD Green Liberal government, which was voted on some quite left-wing promises. But one of the first acts that he did was to double the um, German military budget. And I think what we're going to find in the next few years, that a government which was uh, which, which was voted on with great hope for social change is going to end up dis- disappointing its its um, it, 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 its voters. At the same time, the left party, the Linke, is in a slight crisis of its own. Half the number half the number of vote, vote, votes it got at the election. There's all sorts of internal fights fights going going on 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 at the moment, and so the potential that the AFD and out-and-out Nazis have of gaining ground in the next few years um, is very, very real. I would finish just on one ray of hope. Um, About 15 years ago, the largest um, Nazi demonstration in Europe was every year in Dresden on the anniversary of the bombing in Dresden. There was about 15,000 people every year on an out-and-out Nazi demonstration. This isn't just against Muslims. This is... This is pro-Nazi. Through many years, an alliance of social democrats, greens, revolutionary socialists, anarchists, anti-fascists were able to blockade this demonstration, which meant there's no that happens. Sort of, it's been ten years since this demonstration happened in 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 any real real format. It was this sort of united anti-fascist struggle on the which was necessary to beat beat back the fascists. We have the extra interesting factor, shall we say, that at the same time, a number of these social democrats and greens who are on on those demonstrations will be be on on others, are also members of a party which is going to be implementing the politics which is going to enable the Nazis to to build. And so it's a question of of mobilising as many people as possible, as well as having sharp political arguments about that the only real alternative to fascism is clear distributive politics, is, 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 is clear, clear social changes, which we can't expect from the, from the new election, from the new governments, which means that inside the mass mobilisation, the political clarity, which are in, in terms of offering real political solutions. I'll leave it there. If anyone has any questions, please do. Hi, I'm Ahmed from Fridor Primary School, and you're listening to Community Radio on 3CR.
This magic moment won't last As everything comes to an end And then it happens You reach your lowest point And then it changes You rise back up again G'day, my name is Margie Thorpe. You are listening to 3CR Community Radio, 8.55 on your dial. A weak solidarity bricky team listener when there's good news and bad news. First, the bad news is we're only halfway through. The good news is we're halfway through. 
as the big issue that gripped the Canberra Press Gallery and therefore the nation yesterday was whether Socialist Party Supremo and would-be big Supremo Anthony Albinguzi, who suffering from COVID may well have been, Albinguzi should have attended a particular press event on his first day out of isolation after his doctor told him to go slowly and big Supremo scuttled them more lash son, a.k.a. Scummo, said he had been more active when laid up with COVID than Anthony had been active. And we all thought, doesn't the future of government in this country hang on some critical ideological threats? And a couple of strokes of bad luck for Scummo, as last week he and big economic guru Josh Friedem Icebergs boasted the unemployment rate, which at least they knew, would fall below 4% thanks to their economic expertise. And then out came the figure, not below 4%, but then they assured us it would be a lot higher under a socialist government. And this week they assured us inflation would be about three point something and would you believe it came up at 5.1%. Will the Reserve Bank increase interest rates this Tuesday? Forcing Scummo to point out this shows unemployment races out of control, inflation soars and interest rates rise at the very thought that there may be a socialist government. Imagine how much worse the economy would look if there was a socialist government, he warned as Josh nodded wisely. Uh, but, but this has happened under your watch. This has nothing to do with us. It's caused by international issues outside our control. B- but you just said it was the Socialist Party's fault. International issues outside our control and the Socialist Party. Uh, so when the figures are good, it's nothing to do with the government. It's issues outside your control. Of course not. It's due to our responsible management of the economy. And it must be, because again, Josh nodded wisely. The U.S. Ob's big gun sent to the Solomons to set them straight threatened the U.S. Ob could not rule out military action against the Solomons if evil China established a train killer base there without, uh, without blushing. Satire simply can't compete here. It would be satirical if it wasn't so serious. The U.S. Ob, which has trained killer bases all over the Pacific and Asia, many surrounding evil China, We'd think at least they'd they'd be slightly embarrassed, but then threatening the Solomons makes sense because the bully always takes on the small guy, even if it fails to learn from history that the small guy has been beating up up on it, and it's um and it's been forced to retreat in a military shambles these past fifty years. Go Solomons! The big gun Daniel Critton Brink of War did say, "We reiterate our respect for sovereignty of the Solomon." islands as long as they do what we tell them back here our minister for being offensive and trained killing constable peter duffer was being very offensive toward evil china even resorting to paraphrasing a dangerous leftist author war is peace like and to achieve peace we must pour trillions and trillions into the bottomless coppers of the merchants of death an appropriate and fitting way to celebrate our great national day that honed our cherished true Aussie values by 
landing on the wrong beach in a military disaster. And as Constable Duffer prepares either to invade the Solomons, yet again on the coattails of the US of, or even to invade China, which would make the previous military disasters look like a game of marbles, we asked him whether he supported the practice in the days of yore of those who declare war, leading the train killers into battle. And surprisingly, Pete did not support the practice. Like, you know, like, no. But even if he doesn't lead the train killers into battle, Constable Duffer has shown great courage under fire. Notice his posters have his head on them. Not sure that's such a great idea. And in a feature article about him, the poor journalist, anyway, former caring business class, big economic guru Joe Haggie, the worker, said, Pete has authenticity. My God, that's even more depressing. He means it. Pete's successor as Minister for Keeping Us Secure, Curran, and Screws Things Up, said the Solomon's deal showed evil China was interfering in the Trublowazi election, presumably with Socialist Party support, showing Curran has obviously attended the like Constable Duffer School of Logic-like. One certainty is Pete just won't shut up, will he? One day yelling evil China had bribed the Solomon's, uh, our foreign aid is purely for the benefit of our Pacific family, as we like to call them, especially now, Pete. Like, yes, you know, as long as it, you know, like benefits uh, true was he like caring business class. And then his declaration of war is peace, and then next day Pete said we'd be shocked at the extent of evil Chinese spying, like you know. Goodness me, how shocking, Pete. Uh, how did we find out? Like, you know, like our spies told us like. And this case against a lawyer that has to be held in camera, something about Timor Leste? Yes, like his client revealed Trubler was he had been spying, you know, like on the Timor Leste government. Mm, they must be a serious threat. Should we invade them? We can't, like, you know, rule it out. It must have been a matter of national importance, a threat to our, our national security. It was like very important to Woodside with profits to its uh, bottom line security. But like our spying is for, you know, peaceful like purposes like, you know, fossil fuel extraction like. And good news on that front, the election of Jose Ramos Horta in Timor-Leste has Woodside with profits very excited, popping the corks as the revival of its delayed Timor Sea gas proposal is looking very promising and just a, a pity that poor Woodside with, along with Santosas the profits, finished almost at the bottom of a Bloomberg ranking of the world's major fossils. And given the record of most of them, that's not saying a lot. While their relentless pursuit of more and more fossils won't do much to improve their ranking, their rank ranking. But they assure us they are committed to zero emissions by 2050. So presumably they'll start doing something about it roughly 2049, if the planet hasn't fried to death. And anyway, they tell us zero emissions won't mean zero emissions. We'll still have to extract and use fossils because, 
well because they're there and they bring in lots and lots of lovely profit. And they'll pay good money to plant a tree somewhere. That'll save whatever's left of the planet circa 2050. Even if the tree never actually gets planted, Woodside with profits uh, paid for it in good faith, the, the good faith that it could go on spewing its zero emissions. Anyway, hayseed and sheepshit giant mind Matt Canavan of coal said zero emissions by 2050 was now dead. It's all fossils, fossils, fossils. Zooming emissions by 2050, and with fossils like Matt around, it shows a caring business class government would continue its dedicated campaign against climate change, if there is such a thing. And to cheer us up even more, Anthony Albinguzi promised a Sydney shock jock he would never introduce a carbon tax. Never, ever after last week promising he would approve new coal mines, so it's looking promising for the planet and its creatures. Our only hope is Anthony was being clever because the term tax was imposed on a carbon price by former big supremo tiny a bit more for the bosses. A great big new tax. A great big new tax. Which nonetheless remains a price on pollution, a carbon price whose non-payment is yet another invaluable subsidy to the fossils, adding to their huge profits, which we all know are good for all of us. So as no price on carbon emissions is good for all of us, thank you Sydney Shock Jock and Anthony, Owen, Matt and Scummo and all of them. Well, especially um, Matt perhaps for spilling the beans, which by 2050 will be able to be grown in the tropical Antarctic, if there's any humans alive to eat them. But how nauseating was the veneration of war is peace? And as we say every year, the media promotion of children wearing slouch hats and all the medals of some relative or other, eulogising war and trained killing, while the same media tells us totalitarian regimes brainwash dear little children. So nauseating that I couldn't turn on the telly to watch the footy until the ABC radio announced the bounce due to the pre-game jingoistic crap. But as I always watch it with the ABC radio commentary, um, I never get to hear the ads. But there's one with an elderly couple of my vintage sitting at a table with the woman looking very smug and clever as she reveals on her phone some McDonald's feature as they prepare to bombard their bodies with all that salt, sugar and fat. And I think there's two possibilities. They've made a joint suicide pact or she'll only pretend to eat her so-called meal and plans to kill him. On a nauseating week, listener, if you also watch it, do we share the same nausea on the footy channel whenever that misogynistic sexual harasser and domestic violence perpetrator Wayne Carey comes on the screen? It's an insult. Apparently, we're supposed to forget his atrocious record away from football. On the media, why do they think some things are news when they're clearly not? Like a headline in yesterday's True Blue Aussie Capitalist Review, businesses pass on increased costs. What's the news in that? It'd only be news if they didn't. Next to that, interesting juxtapositioning, labour to act on unpaid super. Workers would be able to take their caring employer to court over unpaid super. Good grief, doesn't the Socialist Party realise this would push prices up even more, hurting those very workers? Myopia, myopia.
What a wonderful gesture if workers gave a little back to their caring employers and said, yes, yes, you can keep the money you've stolen from us. Caring employers would so appreciate it. And don't forget, Scummo and uh, Josh have promised stagnant wages will stop being stagnant, will increase after the election. Finally, interesting that after the big events, week after week, the Grand Prix, the Sunday fashion, the sundry fashion weeks, trained killer celebrations, they've obviously decided enough is enough, that it would be overkill to give even a mention, even a line, even a word to May Day. Caring employers of the world unite. So on behalf of the media that seems to have missed it, happy May Day. Good morning. Join us on May 1st, the International Day of the Working Classes. We're mobilising for workers' rights, decent living conditions, environmental protection, the rights of Indigenous peoples and in opposition to imperialist war and aggression. There'll be speakers, stalls, food and community singing from midday on Sunday, May 1st at Trades Hall on the corner of Ligon and Victoria Street, Carlton. Then march around the city, assembling from 1.30pm. And leading up to the day, don't forget April 28th from 5pm, the annual eight-hour memorial event opposite Trades Hall, followed by a 6pm solidarity event, good food, entertainment and speakers. Help us hold the worst federal government in living memory to account. For more information, visit maydayvictoria.com. The Melbourne Mayday Committee is a 3CR supporter. And you're back with Annie on 3CR Breakfast. And uh, I went down to the eight-hour monument on the 28th. It was uh, the same day as the uh, International um, Memorial for, International Memorial uh, for Workers' Day. Uh, earlier in the day, on Thursday, there had been an event in front of Victoria Trades Hall where they laid out uh, boots representing the... Uh, quite a few people who uh, have died um, up to this point this year uh, in uh, at work. There was one poor fellow, young fellow, who had was having his lunch uh, and uh, using his skateboard and fell off the skateboard, hit his head and died. <laughs> poor bloke. I mean, he, technically he was at work, but uh, uh, someone else was shot by one of his fellow workers. Boy, was it was a road do lally, and there were other much more ordinary um, deaths, as it were, uh, when uh, equipment failed. And uh, this is an example of how accidents are avoidable, uh, but uh, death is a very uh, sobering result for a, a worker and not coming home that night. Anyway, as I said, I went to the eight-hour monument, which was held at, uh, there was a little event at 5pm and laying of wreaths, and a resolution was made. Uh, We gather as unionists, and I'll read some of it. We gather as unionists and community workers at the eight-hour memorial to remember the great struggles waged by Australian workers to win the reduction in hours of work from 48 hours per week to 40 hours per week over 200 years. We salute the courage and determination of those Australian unionists so long ago, which ultimately benefited the entire community. We recognise that there have been many struggles since where workers have 
broken through to improve the lot of all workers in such areas as penalty rates for unsociable work and annual and long service leave, higher pay, safer workplaces and many, many more. We also condemn the big employers, the banks, the mining companies and others uh, who are pursuing policies and programs that place at risk many of the gains made by workers and their unions over the decades. At May Day 2022, we renew our determination to protect workers, hard-won conditions and to win new reforms. And I collected a few of the speeches uh, we'll hear from um, first up from Jack Howard, a part of his speech. He seconded the motion and it goes on to Shane Stevens, who gives us an outline of the uh, issues that are facing the MUA. Uh, Shane is, of course, the uh, secretary of the Victorian branch of the MUA. There's some interesting uh, details in Shane's speech We've covered it on Stick Together, but uh, there's uh, the way the employers are pushing, pushing, pushing to uh, in a concerted and uh, manner uh, to undermine working conditions and uh, pay in the Australian uh, landscape. Uh, because, of course, uh, one workplace is uh, always uh, one. If one workplace topples, then it uh, uh, runs through the entire workforce. So, you know, this is why solidarity forever. Private franchise operator run what should be our publicly owned transport rail system. Uh, I don't think finding the money for 113 more frontline staff is very much to ask for at all. So we'll keep that campaign going. It'll point a victory. I suppose the only thing else I can say is uh, that naturally I know we'll all be working hard to throw out Scott Morrison and this coalition government at this election and to keep the coalition out of office in Victoria here at the state election later on this year. But really, uh, when you look at the federal Labor opposition at this time, what it's offering and so on, uh, of course we want them to win, but when it often seems that even where there are good policies there, policies that would do something to help working people have a more secure job, uh, to have a better standard of living, to support their families, their loved ones, uh, to do something for those who are out of work. It often seems that Federal Labor right now doesn't even know how to argue strongly and firmly and well enough for the good policies that it has. And really, when you look at the gamut of the platform and the policies that Anthony Albanese in the Federal Labor Party are offering, it still feels well short of a kind of alternative that working people desperately need and are crying out for, and which would be popular. Something that really promises a complete and fundamental shift in the balance of wealth and power away from bosses and the rich and big business to in favour of working people and their families and their unions. We need and we need to be fighting for the unfettered right to strike. That's the only thing that could even start to make our side in the struggle start to be level to the power that the bosses and the big corporations are able to level against us every day, whatever they feel like it. We need to fight for the right to for patent bargaining, for industrial bargaining, so that the benefits and the gains that a group of workers in one section or one industry win flow through to the rest of the industry as they rightly should. But we need to fight for the right to... Well, we need to turn the uh, anti-secondary boycott laws of the Trade Practices Act into a dead letter. Basically what that means is that when one group of workers go in on strike, 
a group of other workers who might be con connected to what they do in the supply chain, say, let us say, for example, the truck drivers bringing the supplies in and out of, say, a warehouse where the workers have gone on strike. If they wanted to join them in solidarity strike action by refusing to handle or transport the goods coming in and out until those workers won their claim, that's barred by law. It's illegal under law. We need to turn that into a dead letter to even start to turn our trade unions back into a fighting movement again. And the only way we're really going to do that is to come together, work strategically, uh, and turn those laws into a dead letter by deed, not waiting for some kind of legislation or some kind of action from government to do it. So, obviously, we know the federal election matters, but we know that even if the coalition are thrown out, we just cannot ever rely on a so-called strategy, or it's a non-strategy, of enterprise bargaining unionism. We can't rely on a strategy of unionism that looks to just to the Fair Work Commission and trying to box clever and get some kind of better leverage out of a commission system. And we certainly can't rely on our trade union movement to just hand a blank cheque over to any federal Labor government and hope that they're going to come in and save us from the dreadful condition our movement is in. And we can't rely on the so-called style of trade unionism that, uh, that argues for that. Uh, and frankly, we need to cast aside the so-called trade unionists, so-called, who claim that workers and bosses have common interests and common ground between each other. Because look at the terrible place that's uh, put our movement in now. We need to come together and think strategically about how we are going to fight, revive, uh, how we are going to revive a strong fighting and militant trade union movement where all workers are lifted up and are able to fight together and we're able to start to fight to turn the balance of wealth and power in this country back around to our side again. It's the only way we're going to be looking towards some kind of humane and equal order in the world of things. At the same time, we also need to be looking ahead and fighting to scrap and pull Australia out of AUKUS, to withdraw from ANZUS, to close the US foreign uh, US military and surveillance bases on Australian soil and end Australia's predatory relationship of domination and bullying over the workers and people of the Asia-Pacific. And you look at the Solomon Islands and security pact they've just signed there with China, and you have politicians on both the government and on the Labor side waxing lyrical about how terrible it is that the Solomon government has done that. Well, it may be a bad thing, you know. I, you know, I don't have any illusions at all about China, but you know what? Australia and the United States do the same thing of domineering and dominating all the time over those countries, dominating their local economies through multinationals, big capital, military treatings, taking democratic sovereignty away from those countries' people and their workers and independent trade unions. When we do it, it's normal, but when another side does it, it's outrageous. What utter hypocrisy that is. So we need to fight and resist the war drive that the Australian body politics is putting us on, and we need to fight and fight, not just as a project for the next term of federal politics, but for the next term of years, to repeal and force the exit of AUKUS from Australia and to take on and fight answers as well. I think I've already said enough, but um, all I can say is that uh, it's in work of solidarity and their ability to come together and to actually act out and fight and not being afraid to strike and come out in solidarity with one another is the only thing that's made the difference. Uh, in this struggle between being dominated and fighting back and winning and advancing the cause of equality and social justice. So uh, thank you very much for your time and the privilege, comrades. And I look forward to seeing you in May Day this summer. Thanks. Uh, Jack, uh, second the resolution. I'll just call on uh, Shane from the, from the MUA to give a bit of a thumbnail uh, report in relation to... Uh,
what's what's the what the issues are confronting the MUA. And on Sunday, I'm sure you'll elaborate a lot further. So I'll just call. Firstly, on behalf of the Maritime Union of Australia, I would also like to acknowledge the land upon the traditional owners of the land upon which we meet today, the Woodbury people of the Greater Kulin Nation, and pay my respects to their elders, past and present, and also pay my respects to any First Nations people here today. Um, I'd also like to acknowledge to uh, Len and Spady for the hard work they do putting these May Day events together and to all the activists here today are uh, fantastic. Um, uh, the numbers are seem to be lower than they have been for a while. I mean, we had COVID recently and stuff, but um, we'd like to see if we could build this up over the course of time. Um, sensational, thank you for that. I'd also like to acknowledge um, our brothers and sisters and comrades that have gone before us a hundred, over 160 years ago to put in place, you know, the, what we have now, what we're fighting for now. Um, you know, those people, workers from the, um, the workers of the world um, that got this together um, all those years ago. Uh, with that too, I just want to read from the, the dedication I've got here from our union. Uh, in memory of our courageous labour movement activists that sacrificed for the momentous eight hour day. We humbly lay this wreath in honour of your memory and legacy of solidarity for all future generations. To those who continue to struggle, we shall overcome, like our brothers and sisters before us. In solidarity, the Maritime Union of Australia Victoria branch. Workers of the world unite. Right. Okay, our industry, goodness me, um, I could be here all day. No, you haven't that long. I haven't, no. As you know, we cover uh, only a handful of in, in, um, work sites or industries in, in our union. Uh, divers, port workers, offshore and stuff. The two big ones being stevedoring and seafaring. Um, I'll start with the, uh, the seafaring. As you probably know, our history as an island nation, uh, we had hundreds of ships flying the coast internationally and, and domestically. And over time, that dwindled down until probably about 30 years ago, we had about 80 vessels, Australian flag, Australian crew. And to introduce the, uh, the Liberal government with their single voyage permits, all that sort of thing. Um, and just, just their uh, hardcore line of supporting big business international business and not supporting the people that they've been mandated to support is the people of Australia, um, the Australian workers and of course the seafarers. Um, we're down to about 12, approximately 12 vessels, Australian flag and Australian crews. Six of them do the Bass Strait run, so we're, we're in dire straits there. Uh, we, we need to get the uh, Morrison government out because of this, because uh, Albanese has pledged a strategic fleet for us. Um, with I think about 12 ships straight up and that will introduce in time more ships and, and, and possibly shipbuilding. Um, in the middle of this we have uh, the dispute you may be aware of is the Spitzer dispute. Uh, Spitzer operate tugs around Australia. They employ about a thousand Australians, uh, so a big employer. But Spitzer is part of the bigger umbrella of uh, Maersk, which is a Dutch company, um, a, a huge company probably the third biggest shipping company in the world and uh, no surprise that during COVID in the last financial year made about 24 billion dollars profit. Now 
our industry in Australia kept everything going. We were sort of deemed essential. We didn't stop. Um, so that was the seafarers and the wharfies. But at all this time, we, we had been in negotiations for a, a national agreement with Spitzer um, around all ports and all branches. And it was two years ago, I did attend one of their early, or early in the piece, but it was late in negotiations. Um, and we were, we were only about two weeks away from signing an EBA. It was very, very close. So you could, at that time, it was more or less just the drafting tidying up. Well, out of the blue, out of nowhere, they decided to introduce 30 new claims, just pulled apart everything that we'd achieved in the previous two years, 30 new claims, and most of them, after we read them, made no sense. And when we asked them to articulate all these claims, the bosses in Melbourne, uh, around the country, couldn't explain them either. So obviously this was something that was come out of, uh, uh, it was an international uh, um, attack on us, and subsequently, two, another, you know, most recently, so two years later, uh, we're getting closer. But in the meantime, they've approached the government, um, they've used Fair Work, they've used a, a loophole in um, the Fair Work Act that, uh, to remove an EBA that's usually designed for non-operative EBAs. But they've found a loophole, applied to Fair Work to rip up the current agreement. Now that's an agreement that they have, they've had since agreement started in the 90s. And believe me, I'm most aware of what our blokes down in Port of Melbourne do. Very flexible, good arrangements, good workers, um, a decent pay of course. To rip up that agreement means it's back to the award and everything, uh, everything that's attached to the award that's not in, uh, in our, the EBA is gone. So, uh, diabolical and um, it just couldn't be sustained. Um, and that's still pending, that's still hanging in there. They tell me they're still negotiating, but uh, it's a horrible thing to have hanging over those blokes, particularly when they've worked so hard through negotiations to get where they are. So uh, we, going forward, getting the Morrison government out, we totally expected it, and we had Bill Shorten attend our monthly meeting the other day, and he reiterated the commitment from the Labor government that he would fix these issues in the fair work, fix the uh, the registered organisation uh, act, all that sort of stuff. So that would mean these these loopholes that would tear up the room. So we're looking forward to that. But, uh, with all hard, the hard work from all of us, we can get them in there. Um, Stephen Oring, um, I think I mentioned two years ago the the issues we had with uh, DP World that was finally resolved, but. Coming out of that, we had the Patrick's dispute, another company that uh, applied to Fair Work to tear up their agreement. Now, thank goodness at the 11th hour, I think it was a Friday night, where they, they withdrew it and uh, uh, because they were due in, in Fair Work on the Monday. So that would have been diabolical too, because going back to the award meant there was no more rosters. Um, they were back to uh, uh, lesser hourly rate. And in that, people saying, well, oh, look, there possibly, you know, there's uh, uh, overtime was. Um, optional but the biggest fear was they gave the ability to company employ casuals so just because you were permanent employee meant nothing they could do what they like so thank goodness at the last minute we were able to get an agreement up, up there um, so that 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 was a, a godsend that happening for those blokes two years later but we've still got the these big business like dp world cube they're still attacking us um, well, we, you may have heard a couple of months ago the Cube Warp is in Fremantle taking protected action. 
um, the locked out for 11 weeks, they were on the grass. Um, they finally got back in. It's not long after that, going back in the gate. Um, the company um, made an application to the ABCC, which as you know is the government body that investigates uh, the construction workers. And in that they used uh, that part where they say if you're holding up uh, business, holding up manufacturing, you know, the, the supply chain, um, that's an offence. So the MUI said, well hang on, this isn't to do with this. And they said, well no it is because in that illegal dispute, it, what we call it a legal dispute, we said no, it's protected action, you locked us out. They said because we weren't delivering steel and timber off the ship, you interrupted the supply chain. So believe that, they'll try anything. So we, we need to fix that. So that's ongoing. Um, there are other issues like uh, in 2020, DP World uh, protected action got the, uh, in Sydney. Uh, all legal and it really wasn't made an impact but they were able to, uh, DP World at a national level had the ear of the Morrison government and subsequently from that uh, got them back to work because the threat was that they were gonna, the government was going to take the MUI to court for impacting the Australian economy. And actually went on TV public and said there was 40 ships lined up in Botany Bay. I mean, anyone could have looked out up any of those tall towers and saw only about four of them out there. It was ridiculous. but. Uh, that's what we're up against. Um, the, the, the fight, I mean, I used to say struggle a lot. I think it's a fight. It's really a fight. We struggle to get out of bed from time to time. But <laughs> what we're doing here is a fight, is absolute fight. Um, my concern is if we don't get Albanese up, um, Morrison's had his feet under the desk for this last term. He knows what he wants to do. He's, he's got comfortable. He, he, he knows the, the fights he's going to have. He's got to start implementing anything, everything the next term round. Um, we saw that with Howard and company um, over the course of time. We can't let this happen because they're getting stronger, they're getting smarter, they're getting big business, international business uh, support from them. Um, what can I say? It's, it's, it's imperative that we uh, get rid of the uh, Morrison government. Thank you. OK, we'll uh, leave the eight-hour monument um, event that happened on the 28th. It's come to the end of the program uh, here on 3CR Breakfast. Uh, we uh, went all over the shop, really. We uh, went to uh, the Green Band outside the Curtin Hotel. In fact, we've been in the same location for this program, really, because the eight-hour monument, of course, is just across the road from um, Victoria uh, Trades Hall, and, of course, the Curtin Hotel is there too. Uh, we heard from Kevin, this is the week that was, but we also went to Germany via the uh, Marxist conference to hear about the uh, rather unsavoury developments in the right in Germany. Uh, I just want to go out with a song by the Triffids. It's uh, the um, Wide Open Road. The Triffids, uh, there's a new documentary, uh, Love in Bright Landscapes, being put together by Jonathan Alley. It's a very, it's a definitive uh, documentary, really, because it's, uh, sp- it uh, takes in material from very uh, a wide range of sources uh, and it's a beautifully put together piece that honours David McComb who is the, was the uh, uh, leading light of the Triffids uh, 
and it uh, revived my memory of the great tunes and songs and poetry that emanated from a man who died too young. So we'll go out with uh, Wide Open Road and remind you that there's a big uh, event uh, of screening at the Astor that you might be interested in looking up, which of the uh, love in bright landscapes. Of course, it's going to have a theatrical release in other cinemas. Uh, So coming up next is Asia Pacific Currents and as I said we'll go out with Wide Open Road. listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.